turning your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, going to be reading verses 14 through the end of the chapter, verse 17, in a sermon on passing on the faith from one generation to another. Hear what follows for what it is, the Word of God. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And thus far, the reading of God's word. Three points to the sermon this morning. First, an introduction. Secondly, the instruction. And thirdly, the implications. So the introduction, uh, the instructions, and the implications. Godly parents do not bring a child into the world thinking they are populating hell. Godly parents do not bring a child into the world thinking they are populating hell. The question which is foremost in the mind of godly parents is how to pass on the faith which resides in them to the next generation. And in this passage we have an example of multi-generational transmission. Look at verse 14. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now, from whom? Well, from Paul, obviously, as Paul writes to Timothy here, but um, also um, his, Timothy's grandmother and his mother. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 5. Chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul writing to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. I mentioned the generational transmission of five generations, made reference also to Taylor's mother, uh, and to Taylor and to her mother um, as well. And the question, of course, is how to pass on the faith, especially for those of us that are first-generation Christians. Well, a number of uh, things uh, to consider uh, by way of application before we go any further. First of all, what I have to say this morning is not a formula with guaranteed results. It's not as if you can follow an A, B, C, D and arrive at E, all right? There were godly uh, parents in the Bible who had wicked children. There were wicked parents in the Bible who had godly children. But ordinarily, ordinarily, God has told us in his word that we ought to expect that if we raise our children according to the fear and admonition of the Lord, we can uh, prayerfully depend on his promises that they will possess faith in the next generation. So don't think that what is taught is formulaic, all right? We don't have formulas. Secondly, salvation, all right, is not apart from saving faith, all right? Look at verse 15. The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We do not 
uh, believe in baptismal regeneration, that something magical or mystical happened here when Molly Mary was baptized and that somehow uh, all her sins are forgiven and she's granted eternal life as a result of that, nor do we believe that just because her parents are believers that she will be a believer. Um, that's not always the case, all right? It, it, it is uh, dependent upon saving faith in Jesus Christ, which is why we prayed uh, in our uh, former, uh, foregoing hymn, all right? We dare your steadfast word to prove. We present these little children, and we're asking that you would grant faith to them through Jesus Christ, all right? Thirdly, and very importantly, in the Bible, Timothy is the norm. That is, the norm in the Bible is for the faith to be passed on from one generation to the next, as it was with Timothy. Unfortunately, in our day, in contemporary North American evangelicalism, we have taken Paul with a conversion on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9, as the norm and not Timothy. But read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you'll see that Paul is the exception, not the norm. Timothy is the norm. God is a God to believers and to their children, and it is the means of Christian nurture uh, by which God has ordained the children of believers are brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ, all right? So Timothy is the norm. There's no indication in the Bible that a child is to grow up uh, to rebel and then be converted in adult years. There's no indication of that in the Bible, and we ought not to expect it. The norm is for a child of Christian parents never to know a time when they don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I say this to you young people here, uh, you may associate with other Christians and they're godly people and they love the Lord, they believe his word, let's, uh, let's admit that at the outset, who might make you have conversion envy. Oh, I wish I had a conversion story like yours. I say this because people say that to me. I was converted at the age of 29. People say, oh, I wish I had a story like yours where I, there's a clear delineation between darkness and light, between being lost and being saved. I say, you don't know what you're talking about. I wish I had a story like yours where I never knew a time that Jesus Christ was not my Lord and Savior. You don't know the scars that I will bear in my soul until the day I die from my pre-Christian life. Do not envy that. Do not be... Uh, covetous of that. Never, never, never. Fourthly, Christian religion is a heart religion. Christian religion is a heart religion. The Bible teaches that uh, it change comes from the inside out, all right? So look for, quickly, look at Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 26. Proverbs 22 and verse 26. And Joshua and Taylor, I say this for your benefit uh, particularly, because these are words I spoke, I don't know if you remember Joshua, I spoke to you and Joel and Peter at the kitchen table in Dutton, Michigan. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 26. Oop, wrong, <coughs> wrong verse. Uh, <clears throat> sorry about that. Proverbs 22. Ah. All right, I'm not going to take time to look. Look around. Proverbs says, my son, give me your heart. Give me your heart. 
And as parents, this is what we're always aiming for. We're not aiming for just good behavior. We're not aiming for acceptable behavior. We're not aiming to have our children not disturb us while we're talking or watching television or listening to something on the radio. That's not the aim. The aim is to get their heart, all right? And we always aim for their heart. My son, give me your heart. Why? Because Christianity is first and foremost a heart religion. It is not mere conformity to rules. And lastly, need to say, as we talk about Timothy uh, receiving faith from uh, Lois and from Eunice, that Christian nurture is the God-ordained means to the end of believe, uh, believers' children having saving faith. Look at Genesis chapter 18, if you will. Genesis chapter 18. I realize we're not even past the introduction and you got five points application, but look at Genesis chapter 18. It's very important. Verse 17, God speaks to Abraham, all right, to whom he said, my covenant is with you and your seed after you. The Lord said, verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's a promise that's repeated five times in the book of Genesis. All nations will be blessed in Abraham's descendants. Of course, you can hear echoes of the Great Commission there, right? All right, so verse 19, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God made a promise and along with the sovereign promise of almighty God, God told him the means by which that promise was to be obtained. Train your children in righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about what I have promised you. All right? So, Christian nurture, right? We don't evangelize children of believers. We nurture them in the faith, as we will note momentarily. All right? And Christian nurture is the God-ordained means for the children of believers to uh, uh, have saving faith. All right? Uh, this is covenantal. Covenant has promise and demand, has God's sovereign uh, initiation, and also man's responsibility. The Bible is covenantal, and we ought to recognize this as we talk about it. So secondly, instructions. We look at our text, return to our text, all right? How from childhood, actually the word there is infancy, it's often used of a child in the womb even, all right? How from infancy you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is one's lifeline to Jesus Christ. The Bible is one's lifeline to Jesus Christ. Very important, parents, very important. The Bible is one's lifeline to Jesus Christ. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Again, covenantal. Notice what Paul here says, all right? Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. The word there is inspire. And notice significantly, look at the text. It's not the authors that are inspired. It's the scripture which they write which is inspired. Breathed out by God. It is the living word of the living God. 
The Bible is as much the very word of God as if it had been spoken audibly by God by means of his own mouth. It is his word. If God were to speak audibly what he wants you to know, he would say nothing more, nothing less, and nothing different than what he has written in his word. It's identical with anything he might have spoken by his mouth. It is God's word, and it is our lifeline to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying they're able to make you wise through, uh, through salvation uh, in Jesus, through faith in Jesus Christ. And apart from the Bible, that ordinarily does not occur. Faith comes by hearing, and that by the word of Christ. And where do you hear the word of Christ? Either in the preaching of that word or in the reading of that word. The Bible is one's lifeline to Jesus Christ. So what is it that we are to teach children in order to have the faith passed on from one generation to the next? Well, certainly the Bible, but some specifics as well. Look at the text, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. First of all, teaching, all right? The word here is doctrine, okay? The word here is doctrine. Parents, Joshua, Taylor, you are to teach your children doctrine. It's why in this church we have classes after 1130 worship for catechism, for our youth, all right? But that, please listen to me, parents, you're not to say, well, they get it at church, I don't have to do anything at home. Oh, no, no, no. Primary responsibility is with you as parents, not with uh, classroom teachers, all right? You are to teach your children catechism. You're to teach them doctrine. You're to teach them what the scriptures principally teach. What you have to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man, all right? You are to teach them that. And catechism, very importantly, okay, is a tried and true method proven over the course of hundreds of years of being an instrument that God has used to have the faith passed from one generation to another. All right? <clears throat> Catechism is a tried and true method of having uh, the uh, faith passed on from one generation to the next. I remember years ago when we were downtown, um, we used to give testimonies, and uh, we should probably start that at some point again, but we used to give testimonies, and there was a couple that had grown up in the church, and everybody in the congregation at that time were first-generation Christians, and giving testimonies about how they came to Christ, how they came to Messiah's Reformed Fellowship, we said, let's ask this couple. They're unusual. They grew up in the church. Let's ask them for their testimony. Well, this man got up and he gave his testimony about how he had grown up in the church, never knew a time when Jesus Christ was not his Lord and Savior. Somebody asked the question, how long has the Christian faith been in your family? He thought for a moment and he said, 400 years. 400 years. We all had our socks knocked off. We couldn't believe it. Now, that doesn't mean it was... Always, every descendant for 400 years, there were exceptions, of course. But he could trace the family back 400 years, faith in his family. And why? Because in the tradition in which he was raised, catechetical instruction in the school, 
in the church and in the home was emphasized. So it's not an infallible means, all right, by any means, but it is a tried and true means of teaching our descendants, our children, uh, doctrine, teaching, all right? Secondly, look at the text for reproof. Scripture is profitable for reproof. The word here means warnings, warnings about errors, warnings about false teaching, warnings about danger. It's very interesting in God's covenant, all right, if you look at Leviticus chapter 26 or Deuteronomy chapter 8, right, not only are there promises of blessing for obedience, but there are warnings of curses for disobedience. God wanted his people to know If you follow me faithfully, if you love me, if you believe in me, if you trust me, if you walk in my ways, I'll bless bless your face off. But if you forsake me, you neglect me, you turn your back on me, you disregard me, you disobey me, here are all the curses that are going to come on you. And we have reproof for our children to warn them to steal them away from error, from false teaching, from dangers in life and in faith. Thirdly, for correction. The Bible is profitable for correction. The word here has the connotation of restoring someone to a right path. If reproof is negative, then correction is positive, all right? To restore someone to the right path. And here we have the importance of discipline, all right? Corporal discipline of covenant youth, all right? Uh, the proverb, book of Proverbs teaches, he who spares the rod yeah, hates. You don't discipline your child, you hate your child. The Lord disciplines those he loves, Proverbs 3, Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines those he loves. As Hebrews 12, it says, If you're not disciplined, you're a bastard. You're illegitimate. No, you love children, you discipline them. Why? So that God won't have to. So that they are steered back to the right path. Listen, let's be very pragmatic about this, all right? A child goes over, little Eden goes over, and she's going to touch the stove while the gas is lit. Don't do that. You're doing that to hurt the child? No, you're doing that so that she doesn't get hurt by putting her hand near a live fire. So we engage in correction. It's very interesting. The book of Proverbs, I don't think many people are familiar with it. I'm trying to read a chapter uh, or a chapter of Proverbs a day. So I get through the whole book of Proverbs once a month. It's good practice. I commend it to you. All right. But the book of Proverbs is written for covenant children. Read it. It's written, especially young men. All right? It's a whole book of the Bible written for you. <laughs> Isn't that nice? God had particular concern. He said, I, I want Maddox to know. I'm going to write a whole book of the Bible just for him, just for you and all other covenant children. All right? And Joshua and Taylor, Joshua, I don't know if you remember how uh, mom had a book, Pro- uh, Proverbs for Parenting. You remember that book? Yeah. I commend it to all the parents here. Proverbs for parenting. Taking the book of Proverbs and using it to apply uh, to the daily uh, lives uh, of covenant youth. And then fourthly, the Bible is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. We train our children to live according to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
We teach them that the Bible is a lamp unto their feet, that the Bible is a lifeline to Jesus Christ, but it's also the book which helps us navigate life in this world. We live according to every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the instruction, how do you pass on the faith? Having the Bible. And having the Bible be profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Some implications that follow from that by way of further application. First of all, Joshua and Taylor and all parents, I commend to you the practice of daily family worship. What do I mean by that? Well, family worship is another means which is tried and true over the course of many generations of having the faith passed from one generation to the next. Family worship is assembling around the table, whatever time of day that is, maybe before you all go your separate ways or before school and work begins or at the end of the day as you sit down to dinner, that the family is assembled together, you're assembled together around a table. And I always had to teach my children, you know, my kids, it's like you sit down to eat and it's like, Dad, we got places to go and people to see. They want to get up and No, 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 no. Eating in the Bible is about social interaction. It's not just about stuff in your face, right? And it's about being around the table and being around the Word of God. We're going to read. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. These are practices, right, uh, that we should learn as covenant families <clears throat> to have uh, daily family worship, reading of the Bible, prayer, and singing uh, to whatever extent you're able. If you don't have uh, the Trinity Psalter hymnal app, uh, you are able to get it. It's, it's available widely on uh, download platforms. It's cheap. If you can't afford it, talk to the deacons. They will pay, buy it for you, all right? It's no big expense. We we're glad to do that for you. And you can actually have uh, the app, open it up, you have the words there. I saw Sean Tubby uh, reading from it uh, as we were singing, not looking at the hymnal. And it actually has the music there as well. So for those of us that can't sing, like me, I can't sing, you can actually have the music and you can read the words and you can sing along. All right? And why is this important? Well, it's important all right, because it's a primary means of getting that word inspired, breathed out by God, which is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness daily ingested by your children, daily ingested by you as mom and dad or as parent, right? Daily, you have that practice, daily becoming familiar with the word of God. And of course, you want to do this on a, uh, 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 an age-appropriate uh, means, all right? Uh, we don't take Eden, for example. Sorry, I keep picking on your family, but you're in the front row. <laughs> uh, so we don't take Eden, all right, and explain to her the ins and outs of, uh, of algebra and, and, uh, and higher mathematics, right? No. You begin young, right? It's like two, one plus one equals two. A, apple, B, ball, C, C, cat, right? ABCs, you learn your ABCs. Well, it's the same thing. So there's age-appropriate means of teaching children, Okay. You don't have to sit down and read, uh, you know, a whole chapter of the Bible with somebody that's too young to digest it and understand it. Maybe you only want to read a couple of verses. Maybe you want to have a little conversation about that. Maybe you want to talk about the sermon that the family heard on Sunday, all right? And you have opportunity. What's going on in your children's lives? What's going on in the house that you can address and that you can address uh, good things? You can address bad things. You can encourage. You can dissuade. You can discourage. Right? You can talk about, uh, with older children, you can talk about contemporary affairs and how the Bible applies to life. 
right? And most importantly, this is how families train children to sit still and worship, right? Now, children cry in church. You ought not to be uh, annoyed by that. Would you rather have a church with no children? Of course not. We're thankful God has blessed us as a congregation with children, and if they cry a little bit, it's all right. We can deal with it, right? But we train our children to be able to sit and listen to God's word, to be able to pray with the rest of the congregation and sing with the rest of the congregation, not just by having them show up for an hour or two on Sunday and expecting that that's automatically going to happen, but by doing it every day of the week in family worship. Dad or mom are reading the Bible. Shh, God's speaking. We're praying. Teach our children to pray. We sing to praise God, right? Family worship, very important to put this teaching into practice. Secondly, look at verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The biggest mistake one can make with respect to the Christian religion and the Bible is that it only deals with our spirituality, Certainly it deals with our spirituality. Certainly it is a lifeline to Jesus Christ. It tells us what we're to believe concerning God, what duty God requires of man. But notice what Paul here says. He says, equipped for every good work. Not just religious works, not just spiritual works, not just church work, all right? Not just Christian work, but every good work. Again, picking on the Santana family here. Caesar had his world revolutionized when he saw that the Bible actually applies to his daily work, that the Bible has something to say about what he does from when he goes to work in the morning until he comes home at night, that it, you don't have to go away and live in a monastery in order to serve God. You're called to serve God in your workplace, to work at it with all your heart. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Very important. So the Bible, all right, for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness is so that our children can be equipped for every good work, that we teach our children to see all of life through the spectacles of sacred scripture, that they think biblically, they think God's thoughts after them, which is why, of course, this congregation is engaged and invested in Covenant Christian Academy. Hhopefully one day we can have a five-day-a-week in-person uh, school, all right, uh, for our Covenant children. Uh, that we are teaching them to see all of life, every discipline, whether it's mathematics, whether it's science, whether it's art, whether it's literature, through the spectacles of God's word. We apply all of the Bible to all of life, and that's what Christian education is for. And if I could say it, Christian education is not negotiable. It's not negotiable. It's certainly indispensable, but it is non-negotiable. All you have to do is listen to the horror stories that come out of schools around our country today, particularly in New York City, to say, I wouldn't want my child in that school for a minute. And I'm not talking about just morality, of course, that. But I'm talking about educational quality. The majority of children graduate uh, from schools, I'm not going to specified, but graduate from schools, and they're not ready to go to high school. They can't read. They can't, I, listen, I saw this. 
all right? I was on the parent advisory board at a local uh, high school here in New York City, and the lament of the teachers on that parent advisory board uh, or businessmen that came to there was their high school students would come in for job interviews. They couldn't fill out a job application. They couldn't look the person that they were being interviewed by in the face. They couldn't write a complete sentence or an essay. They didn't know how to do it. They can get on their phones quick, right? So it's not just morality, it's the quality of education. Educate, Christian education is a non-negotiable. Thirdly, we want to certainly convey uh, the teaching of the Bible, teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, but not just the word of God, but the words and deeds of God. Very important. Look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78, another portion of scripture that teaches about the responsibility of parents to raise covenant children in the Lord. Psalm 78 and verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Not just the word of God, but the deeds of God. Very interesting, in uh, 1994 when Julie and I traveled to Israel, we were there during spring break. And uh, the schools in Israel had spring break at the same time. And we didn't see, an, we were on a tour, and I won't go into this in detail, we were on a tour, you can ask me about it later if you like, where we didn't see another tourist for the first 10 days that we were there. We went to all the places where things in the Bible happened. We went to various cities where things happened. We went where David fought Goliath. We went where Samson uh, dragged up the, uh, the, door, the gates of the city, dragged them up the, the hillside, and, and places like that. We didn't see another tourist for 10 days. You know what we did see as we went to all those sites that you read about in the Bible? Jewish parents taking their children and telling them, this is what God did here. This is what God did here. This is what God did here. Now, we can't all go to Israel, although I hope someday you get a chance to go on a trip like ours. But we don't convey to our children just the words of God in abstraction. We teach them what God actually did. And, of course, preeminently what God did in history in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. As Pastor Dan has been teaching in the Sunday School on Machen, Machen makes an important point and. um in that book, Christianity and Liberalism, that liberalism denies the historicity of the Bible. One of the reasons why it's, not, it's another religion, it's not Christianity, because they don't take into account the history, that God is a God who acts in history. God is a God who worked in history. God is a God who enters history and fights on behalf of his people. God is a God who enters into space and time and works for his people. very interesting Jewish people when they celebrate the Passover won't go into this in detail for time's sake but when they celebrate the Passover and they have a, a Passover Seder <clears throat> the whole family is seated around the table and they recount the Exodus right the Exodus chapter 12 through 16 right all the way up to 1820 right the Exodus where God redeemed his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and they don't just say, that's what God did then and there. They tell their children 
That's what God did for us. That's what God did for you. They don't abstract it and teach it as a history lesson. They teach it as something vital and vibrant. Now, of course, they're unbelieving, and we ought to have sympathy. We ought to pray for the Jewish people and their unbelief, that they come to know Jesus as their Messiah. My point is simply that they are often very covenantal. They're teaching their children the deeds of God. When God redeemed bond, uh, 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 Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, you were redeemed out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Can I read to you something from the French baptismal form? <clears throat> that somewhat mirrors this? For you, little one, the Spirit of God moved over the waters at creation, and the Lord God made covenants with his people. It was for you that the Word of God became flesh and lived among us full of grace and truth. For you, Molly Mary Murphy, Jesus Christ suffered death, crying out at the end, it is finished. For you, Christ triumphed over death, rose in newness of life and ascended to rule over all. All of this was done for you, little one, though you do not know any of this yet. But we will continue to tell you this good news until it becomes your own. And so the promise of the gospel is fulfilled. We love because he first loved us. Jesus Christ died on a hill outside Jerusalem, on a cross on Calvary. It was a historical fact. He died there to bear the sins of his people. He died there in order to impute to them his perfect righteousness. He died there because he loved you. He loved Molly Mary Murphy. He died for Molly Mary Murphy. He died for the covenant children in this congregation, and they need to know it. They need to sing it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let it ring from the housetops of our covenant families. And lastly, lastly, what is it that makes a Christian home different from your neighbors? Joshua and Taylor, what will make your home different from those of your neighbors? It won't be your politics. It won't be your practices. It won't be your work. What will make your home different from those of your neighbors as fine, upright, and upstanding citizens that they may be is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your home and that his word is the law in your home. That's what will make your home different from every other home. Keep the Bible at the center of your home. Keep Jesus Christ as the Lord of your marriage. Keep Jesus Christ as the Lord of Molly Mary and whatever other children the Lord may give you. Keep Jesus Christ as the Lord who rules in the Murphy household so that everybody knows we are different from you in this. Christ loved me and gave himself for me my wife, and my child. <clears throat> but as for you, Joshua Taylor, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, 
reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We give you thanks and praise that in that word we hear and we meet Jesus Christ, your Son. We give you thanks that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword in the lives of your people. Guide us by your word and spirit in the way of life everlasting, that we might know the smile of your countenance always rests upon us and upon our children. For we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen and amen.